Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Real Vision. I'm Max Weathy, and today I'm joined by Dwight Anderson of Osprey Ag Science. Dwight, thank you so much for being with me today. Max, I appreciate you having me. All right. So before we get into uh, ag science and ag tech, why don't we get a little bit about you and your background and uh, how you got into this business? So if we're going to go all the way back in terms of the origin story. Yeah, let's go back. When I came out of college uh, and my background has always been in basic industries. Uh, I went into manufacturing consulting. I took a job with a client to actually become a plant manager for a a paper printing and and coding plant. And then um, after passing through Goldman Sachs' chair and commodity division in the cocoa and coffee group and uh, J.B. Morgan's oil group, very briefly for both, uh, I went and joined Julian Robertson's Tiger Management, where after a couple months, because of the departure of the senior person in the firm, uh, Julian gave me the opportunity to run the basic industries group. So investing publicly and privately and in commodities. And so did that for four years and nine months. And, uh, and that's really where I developed the broader ranging expertise beyond just commodity futures or how to do it operationally, but actually investing across the space. Uh, and after uh, having done that for a number of years, you always want to see, can you do this yourself? And, and I felt that um, I had paid Jack Julian back for the risk he had taken for giving me the responsibility and opportunity I had in relative to the evolution of the firm and my ability still to really contribute relative to the uh, much broader, more liquid markets they were pursuing at the time. I thought it was the right time to give it uh, a risk, a chance. And so partnered with Jason Moraz to run the trading desk and operational side. Uh, we started uh, Osprey in July of 1999, partnered with Tudor Investment Corp. Uh, we had uh, a partnership offers from two other firms. Uh, Tudor offered the lowest payout and the lowest assets, but relative to cultural fit um, skill set fit, but most importantly, you know, in doing our due diligence, every person who had worked at Tudor, whether they had succeeded or failed, said that uh, Tudor was good to the spirit of a relationship. As you don't know how the path will go and the troubles that might occur, um, especially early in a relationship when you're still building trust and knowledge for each other, uh, that reliability and, and, and that, that culture was one that we thought was the most important to maximize our probability of success. Um, and it was actually their lawyer who pushed us in the end with the name that uh, we chose and that we had looked at a number of different names and had thousands of suggestions from friends, you know, you know, 20 pages of a yellow pad of suggestions from one friend. But in the end, we actually hold off publishing our perspectives a couple of days because we didn't have a name. And Tudor's lawyer, Andrew Paul, just another frustration said, just take a name you like, change the spelling and go with it. And so Osprey is a bird that has the highest hit rate in terms of percentage when it actually chooses to strike. So it'll circle for a long period of time hunting. But when it does, it is the highest hit rate of actually coming up with a successful kill or prey. And it's also hung up by the beach and waters and protected by the U.S. government. 
So we thought that would be a good combination. So we went with uh, William Shakespeare's style, the Old English of Osprey is how we came up with the O-S-P-R-A-I-E, uh, which confuses people both in spelling and pronunciation, but one that is one that we're happy to have chosen because of what it's evocative of. Okay. And so is hit rate just part of your ethos? Is that something you guys strive for to have just a really high hit rate? Or are you looking for those home runs that that pay for the for the losers? Um, unfortunately, we do have losers. Okay. Uh, but uh, the way in which we try to uh, overcome that is, is yes, both with probability and skew. And we, we uh, try to uh, really focus and fixate on getting an above average number of our investments successful and profitable. Um, but we also, especially in Osprey Ag Science, have really focused on what the far right tail could be. And so we've had the good fortune so far that uh, unlike many venture uh, entities, we've had uh, no failures, nothing that is uh, not at least moving along towards its, its, its targets and its milestones. So we've been very lucky on that so far. Uh, so that would give you a good probability and also relative to the addressable market and, and the levels we got in for some of those companies and what the payout could be. We, all, we do believe that some of them could still be home runs as well. All right. So let's talk about that addressable market and really investing in agriculture as well as ag tech more broadly. It's it's not a sector that everybody is familiar with or has exposure to, and it requires you know special expertise. So what are the things that people should know about investing in, in that sector before they, they get in there? Well, let me give you a little bit of our background in agriculture that gave us comfortable to uh, two decades on to add on ag tech as a complementary part of our portfolio. So began by just doing years of research, especially from the commodity futures, understanding the economics of agricultural production, having started in cocoa and coffee, expanded into row crops, uh, and also having been materially involved in the late 90s into the, the next decade, the first part of the century, in the seed companies. And really started to understand, you know, how the economics for a Monsanto worked via the acquisitions of the companies of people like Pioneer Hybrid or Decal. And we were materially involved with a company called Delta and Pineland, which was twice acquired by Monsanto. One time the DOJ annulled it and the second time it went through. And so how you could wrap uh, different features and stack them within the seed and make that complementary to an ag portfolio. We began investing in, in farmland privately in Argentina in 2002 after the evaluation. The hurdle I had set for my uh, uh, analyst in that space was that they had to beat the government bonds, which was a cash return of the low 20%. To be able to buy farmland after the evaluation in the mid to high 20% cash return was an exceptional and unique opportunity. And after buying a few farms, we also understood and appreciated the scale needed so we contributed those farms and some cash and, and combined with George, George Soros' ADECO Agro entity. And then we're involved with them roughly from 2002 through 2015 to build out one of the larger South American farming companies, both row crops and sugar production. Um, at the same time, Max, is I took a look at the U.S. after having seen the scale of farming down in South America, and I couldn't understand why we didn't have the same scale and also why there was no institutional outlet for investment into farmland of any scale, in that we'd been approached multiple times by our investors, especially endowments, uh, to be able to support them for timber investments, because it gave real pricing over time. Uh, at the time, commodities as an asset class was something that was exploding as endowment and institutional portfolios. And 
it was a, a theme that we think commodity investing from the long side is something that's more cyclical and structural. Uh, and especially when you look at agricultural crops, there's a horrible negative role yield most of the time in agricultural uh, commodity futures. And so to be able to be long farmland, which is your positive cash flow and a positive role yield versus uh, the, the commodity futures, seemed to us just a complete home run. And also having seen something like a, a wheat, like a plum creek in timber. And so since we couldn't find any entity out there, we decided to build one. So we spent 18 months interviewing different management teams and business plans for the space. Uh, we selected uh, one led by Richard Holderman and Zerl Gray called Taze River right outside of Indianapolis. We spent another 18 months incubating, allowing them to build their management team. In those three years, we were buying farmland as well. Until finally in roughly 2007, we rolled our farmland and another $450 million into the entity that became Taze River. Um, and Taze River has subsequently grown to become one of the biggest farming companies in America with material footprint in organic dairy, in table grapes and carrots, but also you know, probably one of the biggest seed producers, again, for the ag chem companies in the world as well. And so we remain partnered and aligned in advisory with uh, Medeco Agro, Tate's River, and, and longtime friends and partners there. So that was our connection on the farming side, Max. We talked about the ag chem side. My analyst that decade, Yogesh Mago, who was the one responsible for the Monsanto and Lated investments, we developed a relationship with a person who was then CFO, Carl Casale, who moved on to become CEO of CHS, which is the biggest farm co-op that's out there. Uh, and so we have a 16-year history with Carl and, and Monsanto going back then and, and the same analyst. Yogesh is now one of our partners focused full-time on osteopathic science. And Carl is actually the partner who leads that investment area. So uh, is, is being able to pull in their decades of expertise on that. Um, we've obviously were involved materially in the midstream logistics storage from the acquisition of Gavilon and building you know, those assets out, uh, which uh, was led by Greg Heckman and now the entire management team of Bungie is our former Gavilon management team, which we sold for a little over 4 billion to Mauro Benny and NGL earlier last decade. And so we've now been involved in the seed companies publicly, the AgChem, farming, logistics, but in terms of pure um, ag tech and the inputs and, and that evolution, it was something that as a customer, you know, we were and, are, and remain some of the largest farmers in the world. Uh, and on the production side, we've been involved in understanding, you know, production economics from the commodity futures. And yet we had really struggled, okay, to develop a individual investments, let alone a portfolio of critical mass and size in ag tech, because there were a number of variables that we had trouble lining up all at once is you need to believe in the economics of the individual investment area and structure. You need to believe that the individual companies can get your critical mass in terms of products, that they have an economically competitive model that can't be competed away by the large companies like the Deers or the Monsanto buyers of the world who can bundle. Uh, you need the right valuation, the right management team. Um, ticking all those boxes is something that we had struggled to find in a company that had sort of proper scale and yet uh, understandable valuation. And so we had uh, literally, you know, for over a decade, searched and interviewed and, and stayed on top, but hadn't found something that allowed us an attractive enough entry point. And so, uh, and, and, and as it is, as I said, we were one of the larger customers for these products in the farming area. And so finally, uh, going back to uh, 
late 16 into early 17, a company that we had met with before uh, that had uh, uh, a volatile path due to a number of exogenous issues, Marone Bio, led by Pam Marone, came in and it was obvious to us that they needed to be recapped and restructured. And we finally had found something that had a portfolio of products that had a really sort of unique approach industry that was separate and that we could see how it economic value. And that was really our entry point max. And so that's how we began saying, okay, we finally now have our bellwether and our entry in terms of the space. Um, for us, it's the aspect also of getting the best people and the best team. And that uh, we have a tremendous capital markets background, you know, a lot of you know, understanding the economics and background of the industries, but each industry always has people much better, more knowledgeable than us. And so uh, in doing the due diligence and, and the investment on Marone, we reconnected with Carl Casali. Uh, and uh, oddly enough, he was a, a customer who actually used Marone products for his blueberries. Uh, while we were doing due diligence, we, we were in touch with Brad Griffith of Compass. Okay? And he was a consumer of another Marone product. Okay? And Tom will try to summon that we'd been involved in partnering with uh, back at Remington and Taze River in the Seagull. And uh, Tom Wilchuk was the head of Dow Agro's strategy and seed division. And uh, a gentleman named Bob Woods, who was CEO for North and South America or Syngenta. And so we were able to package these historic friendships, okay, but also partnerships and knowledge of some of the best in the industry to say, hey, we're going to actually make this a dedicated portfolio and product out there in ag tech. And so we'll come to what that portfolio is and became later. But does that sort of give you the history of how we got there? Yeah, it does. So, I mean, it makes sense, Marone, being uh, a recap and restructure that there's obviously some opportunity for you to get a good entry point. But I'm looking at your your website right now and your portfolio of companies, and it's much more than just that one company. So obviously something switched in the industry that gave you this opportunity to get into to not just Marone, but all of these other investments. So what is it? How did the sector mature in the last, you know, it sounds like five years, really, um, that, that gave you this opportunity to get into all these other portfolio companies of yours. So we had um, always approached agricultural investing from the traditional land ownership. And that was because uh, we had taken a look at this, Max, you know, back at the start of this decade. And when you took a look at, at land investing versus almost any other fixed income asset class, whether it was timber, mortgages, you name it, on a 1, 3, 5, 10, 30, 50-year time frame, it outperformed in real terms. And so putting together uh, the scale of opportunity, which other people have then since copied to you know, allow capital to come in to arbitrage that, created some really great first mover advantages. But unfortunately, generally, and until there's some sort of a geopolitical disruption and some sort of an economic shock, you know, the ability to deploy capital at scale to earn, to outperform, and actually earn alpha in terms of your returns in uh, pure row crop agriculture, adjusted for the illiquidity and, and the supply and weather variable risk is somewhat limited. So we believe that right now in terms of sort of uh, private row crop production agriculture, you're in the middle of a, a two or three year window of windfall profits, tremendous free cash, uh, very good profitability for the farmers. And you should probably be harvesting pay those profits because we have real concerns about row crop profitability for the second half of this decade due to concerns over transportation fuel demand, the productivity growth in the space, uh, demographic issues, change in forward diet, and so in uh, interest rates. And farmland is one of the most sensitive areas to interest rates. So while it will probably outperform most 
common fixed income investments, we're not sure it'll be a great absolute return investment anymore once you get beyond this two or three year window of windfall profitability. So having and Ben harvesting our, our capital out of traditional agriculture left us you know, with, with the area of, okay, how do we actually benefit from some of those headwinds okay, for row crops and, and what's driving that productivity? And also, what's our competitive advantage? When you take a look at the majority of ag tech funds out there, they go farm to table and they spread themselves incredibly thin. And like we talked earlier about uh, probability of success in investing in individual investments, um, we struggle to see how they can have a competitive advantage when they're across the entire spectrum. And we thought about what we had done and who we knew. And our network and our experience is farming. Max, we've been farmers. Our partners are farmers. That's our network. And so as such, we're in touch with what the farmers need and use and what the real world reality of actually what you're trying to do when you're sitting on your combine in the middle of the field and what makes sense or not, and just sort of on a daily basis. I'm trying to picture you on a combine. <laughs> I have photos, okay? Uh, that aspect is we decided that we would focus only on investments in ag tech tied to productive agriculture. So whether it's outdoor agriculture or uh, indoor agriculture, which is you know, an evolving space for a niche, which plays great to, to some of the evolving tailwinds for the space, that's how we'd focus. And so by focusing our you know, limited capital, because it's internal capital and resources, just in what we knew, we could take advantage of our farmer network to sort of truth source, you know, the, the need for a product as well as its efficacy and probability. Uh, and then we sort of began what we call the double network effect. So is in due diligence in Marone, we found out that we knew a number of people who were the customers. And so we could actually diligence what's the probability of the product and also that they had not been marketed to anywhere near the number of customers possible out there who wanted and could use that. Uh, what we have focused on is how do we uh, reduce inputs, okay? And especially chemical and artificial inputs focused on uh, chemicals to start, but eventually ideally cutting nutrients and water use as well too. How do you do this in a natural way? Uh, and then uh, also sensors and diagnostics to drive those decisions. And then, as we said, controlled environment. So after uh, making the investment in Marone and putting the team together to allow us to evaluate this correctly with Carl and Tom and Bob Woods and Yogesh and dedicated analysts, there's a gentleman named Vesh who came from North Dakota farming and his master's out there. Uh, the, the real question he gets into is where do we go? And so it's a focus on not just the sustainable crop input space, but each individual company needs to potentially make our other company better. So we looked at an investment called Terramera up in Vancouver, led by a visionary CEO named Karin Manus. And what that product, Actigate, allows you to do is cut potentially individual synthetic chemicals used by 90%, but also apparently in pro forma, we'll see if it works in the fields too, but seem to uh, uh, dramatically increase the efficacy of Marone's products. So Marone Science are excited by it, our farmers are excited by it, and so that's a follow-on investment. We next came across an investment led by uh, two young men down in uh, Charlottesville called Agrispheres. Um, and Payam and Amir are phenomenal gifted individuals who came up with a lipid coating that allows the, the chemicals to adhere to the bottom of the plant so you can spray less, gives the fields more, use less, dramatic economic benefit, but also one of the problems with biologics, which are Maroon's products. And uh, just a, a quick aside, 
Biologics have been around for 2,000 years. Those are any naturally occurring element or microorganism that can be used on farming to benefit yield, uh, but that where the crop can still be called organic. And so when the Romans were putting copper or copper sulfate on their grapes, it was the first uh, biologic. And so Marone's products are all biologic. The issue with that, though, is that they're much more temperamental when it comes to extremes of heat or humidity or other aspects which are common in the field. And so the areas where you can get 100% consistent use, like you can synthetic chemicals, are more limited. Agrosphere's coating, okay, their microcell, potentially corrects that in terms of it protects them. It allows you to control the porosity and the time release, but also protection from heat and humidity. And so the Terra Mara science and the Marone people were incredibly excited about the possibility and probability of agrospheres. And so agrospheres made those better and also gave us greater comfort in the investment. And so as you can see, that pyramid effect of how hopefully, in terms of more sustainable, less negatively impactful to the environment, just as competitive uh, economic impact to, to the farmer, um, we're getting this pyramid of beneficial companies to each other and to the farmer and sustainable crop inputs. And so that's where we talked about the double network effect of working with the farmers, understanding their need, each company, you know, whether it's a relevant product, and then our other companies in terms of due diligence on whether it would be beneficial to them, if that makes sense now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I have a few questions there. One would be, you know, it sounds like a lot of these companies already have products. So what stage in you know the maturity, I'm sure it differs from company to company, but are they now at the customer acquisition stage? Is there still proving out efficacy? Um, are you waiting for the trends around sustainable and, and getting away from synthetic chemicals and towards naturals to catch on? What is the big move that needs to happen for the demand to really take off? So when uh, we were due diligence in these different companies, we spoke to the head of commercial operations for North America for Syngenta. And he said, look, we are desperate for these products. The time is now, okay? The issue isn't the end use, the market pressure, whatever else. It's the efficacy and economics of the products, the consistency, the reliability, the scale of market that they're actually equally as competitive for. Give me more products and we'll buy them. Okay? And so the individual companies have commercial products. Terra Mara did, um, Marone did. Agrospheres is much earlier and has a, a very broad range of end markets that it can be in, uh, plant healthcare is a company that has existing products. We usually like to have the lab risk taken out, okay? So it's actually been trialed in some sort of a field, shows probability of use. It doesn't actually have to be selling yet, Max, but investing in concept is something that is uh, so risky that again, relative to our ability to be comfortable on the probability of success, it tends not to be there. So very early stage micro investing, we tend not to do. We have a a network of other friends and feeders who we invest in, who do that and are expert in, will incubate the companies and we'll look to see them after they've lived with them for one, three, seven years, okay? And actually have developed a product where there's some data on is normally the time period where we would invest. 
Okay. And so what's the blend within your portfolio of, of companies that have their product, it's commercially ready to go versus more in that proving out uh, the market fit stage? I'd give you somewhere in that 80, 20, 90, 10, in that, you know, the, the, the vast majority, I'd say, you know, 90% plus actually have some sort of a commercial product that is ready to be trialed at a minimum by farmers on a commercial basis. Okay. And it, it sounds like, you know, AgroSphere's really plays into a lot of the other products that you guys have. Is, is it really like a linchpin investment? Like you need, is there anything that makes the rest of them all work? Well, as I said, AgroSphere's would be in the 10, okay? And so it's one of the most exciting, but also one of the most early stage. But I mean, it is potentially their coding AgroSphere and the AgroSphere they have that potentially allows delivery of RNAi, which we're now all familiar with from the vaccines that a number of us have. But there's been billions spent to try to get its applicability into agriculture. But finding a way to actually deliver it in a safe and efficacious manner is something that entities have struggled with. Not only is AgroSphere potentially beneficial to a uh, biologic company or a synthetic company in terms of uh, its delivery mechanism, it potentially has applicability in terms of RNAi. And so whether you view it as a linchpin, an accelerator, you know, something that's all-encompassing, if we're successful, okay, and if it's successful, the scale of, of what it's addressed market, what it could do for the world and for agriculture is the biggest of all of our companies. So I, I think at this point, we've been a little bit high level, and I'm sure there are some people who still don't fully grasp like what exactly ag tech is. So I think it would be helpful to, to go back and talk about, and we can, we can take a specific company as an example, but some of the things like that you were doing with measuring the, the, the composition of topsoil, I think that's a, a great place to go to understand what exactly ag tech is and how it can help farmers. So um, let's start with uh, just an underlying definition. Okay? For us, ag tech is a, is a, is a new technology okay? that potentially helps improve the productivity um, uh, as you define in multiple different levels for different aspects of agriculture. So it could be you know, something that improves yield. And, and by improving yield, it could be because you eliminate a disease or a pest or because you produce more kernels of corn, okay? Or because you do something for another portfolio that cuts down on the waste in transit. So ag tech is anything that really sort of, you know, improves the total cost, including stakeholder cost and environmental cost uh, for agriculture to either the producer and or the end consumer. So just as a starting point, what, uh, what we define it as. And so um, in terms of topsoil, there's a, a brilliant gentleman, Nate Friedberg, who helped create Climate Corp uh, and led that for a while after selling it to Monsanto and then left uh, and, and created the production board, which has a broad range of investments across agricultural and food. And uh, we had been involved via an investment that Carl Casali had led into trace genomics, which was early on for something similar that has uh, commercial uh, kits out there to help people assess the pathogens and the like in their soul soil uh, that's being sold by Will Rellis. But pattern for us was that next step up in terms of an easy to use, very bottom line beneficial solution to help actually map what is in your soil? What's the microbial community that you can do there? So, because if you can understand the aggregate of the, the nutrient and the potential latent disease risk, you can better actually map. Now that we have 
much more precise ability to apply pesticides, herbicides, you know, you know, fertilizer, water, at a much more granular level per acre than you had historically, where you just dump it from the sky as much as possible, okay? Is more and more farms have the ability to adjust based on squares, even within the same acre, within the same farm. And so someone like Pattern coming in to actually be able to help you figure out what your latent risks are, what are the current problems in terms of soil, how that's creating issues in the yield and health for your crops is something that has dramatic you know, per year, intra-year benefit for farmers on controlling the problems and improving their crops, but in a way that's much less damaging to the just, you know, uh, you know, Roundup, okay, or DDT solutions of decades past. Okay, it sounds almost analogous to what's happening with personalized medicine. Oh, Wait. yes, yes. But I mean, the answer is, is um, our you know, individual knowledge and unraveling of, of our DNA and our cells and our code and, and then the body is, you know, two decades ahead of where we are in agriculture. And so we try to learn from the business models of, of big pharma and biotech and the others that, that are ahead of us in terms of both science and applicability and how you roll that model out. But the aspect of, of that, uh, those industries to uh, agricultural and ag tech is pretty similar in that you had a really unique set of events, you know, in the three through five years ago, where you had eight massive big ag chem, ag input companies, and also, you know, a, a separate number in terms of fertilizer nutrients, and they've all merged and combined. Okay, you've had material consolidation into four and a half. So that's created a, some great opportunities for us because first off, it made many more you know, incredibly capable people available than you had before, either because they vested or they didn't want to work in the new culture or community that they were in. And also it led to an incredible internal focus in terms of those companies on cutting costs, eliminating projects. How do we focus our pipeline? But just like you've seen in consumer goods like beer or pharma, those same consolidations lead to a collapse of the growth for future products in the pipelines. And so that entrepreneurialism and the new products for uh, small capital, we're talking you know, you know, sub 100 million, sub 150 million sort of investment areas, uh, is something that got completely eliminated in these behemoths. Okay? And so now over the next two years, they're gonna be emerging from this internal cost cutting, project cutting focus with dramatically reduced pipelines, but also a real need for growth. And at the same point, dramatic pressures on both their historic products and in the current to give things that are uh, more sustainable, less impact. And so the aggregate biologic world and, and what we call sustainable crop inputs is an area where we believe we're in that creative entrepreneur, entrepreneurial segment that those companies are going to be desperate to have to need to acquire or JV or merge with in order to actually create the growth in their revenues companies for the next decades to come. So we've touched on some trends already that you guys are trying to take advantage of. What are some of the other big trends that you think there's opportunity in that we haven't discussed yet? Well, there's pluses and minuses and trends out there. Max. You know, one of the real different things about investing in agriculture versus something like oil and gas or metals and mining is there is a unique positive about farming in that on average, you grow more per year per acre. Okay? If you have an oil well, you know, it uh, declines over time. If you have a mine, it depletes and you have to go find more and you have all the capex to do it. As long as you manage your water rights and your impact to your soil uh, well and intelligently, um, proper stewardship, 
you will grow more over time per acre, you know, on average. It's whole, you know, the real impact to agriculture in any one year is, is supply variability due to weather, but obviously that average is over time. Um, so it's a very different mindset of how you approach agriculture than the rest of basic industries. It's also an environment that uh, you tend to get some form of aggregate government support versus attack, okay? So, you know, is, is agriculture is probably one of the greatest opportunities to reduce carbon throughout the chain in terms of for benefiting the world and carbon removal, um, which the other industries don't have except by going away. Right? Uh, and then you also have the issues which are going to affect it over time where you had a, a temporary uh, repricing of corn in the decade from sort of 01 through 11, where it went from two to uh, $8 because uh, ethanol went from one and a half billion gallons to 11 and a half billion gallons. Okay. Yeah. And that surge of the biggest market in the world, which is energy into agriculture, caused a temporary okay, repricing to buy more acres okay, and to create the supply for that. That phenomenal tailwind then, okay, we believe becomes a headwind at the second half of this decade. At the moment, you still have good ethanol demand. You're having a temporary effect from some you know, renewable diesel that's coming in that we think could cause a, a real uh, two-year window of, of potentially uh, an explosion of vegetable oil prices, which will be good for the farmers and the intermediaries like a bungie. Um, it's worrisome to me on a human level because it is one of the main staples for uh, poor people's diets, especially in Asia. And so prices have already risen materially if they double from here. The impact that has to people's ability to feed themselves calories is, is a real humanitarian issue. But the government programs in place causing that will probably react afterwards rather than on a forward-looking basis. So you have this window here where, as I said, row crop profitability is great. Some of that is also created by China is utterly revamping their protein and meat industry. Uh, they've had dramatic uh, health issues that caused a, a possible halving of their hog and pork herd. And the uh, anomalies within diet and meat and, and agriculture around the world are staggering to think about. Uh, China, you know, obviously is, uh, you know, 15%, let's say, of the world's population, keep it simple. They produce and consume more than 50% of all the world's hogs and pork, and also lettuce, okay? And so you have these anomalies of diet. And so the way that was done was very different in terms of meat production than the U.S. In the U.S., as of two years ago, four companies produced over 80% of all the pork production. In China, four companies produced a little over 8%. Okay? The way in which the hogs were fed was on a, on a much smaller individual farm or moo uh, area, and they'd be fed scraps and a random ration of what's available. The government has said, we are going to corporatize and professionalize and commercialize you know, this industry. So they're in a massive expansion. But what that's done is it also commercializes their feed ration to standard grains, soy meal, DDGs, you know, those sorts of inputs. And so it's leading to real expansion of their imports at the same point that they've already had some phenomenal growth in their poultry and aquaculture industries to meet the gap caused by the decimation of their hog herds. And there's a geopolitical angle of pollution and the embarrassment over possible disease uh, from their live meat and fresh meat and uh, non-commercial channels uh, for meat production. And so as China is uh, corporatizing their ration, it's leading to a material expansion of imports. At the same time, you have some of these other programs like the renewable diesel hitting home. That's what's creating 
this two, three year windfall that we spoke about for row crop agriculture. However, supply responds in agriculture. It's not like a mine that takes three, five, seven, 11 years to come on due to permitting and, and difficulty in financing and depth. Is It is capable of both adding acreage and growth and production. At the same point, you're in this complete time period where for most of the developed world, populations are hitting you know, their peak in terms of size and also age. And so as you age and as you get wealthier, you eat more fruit, nuts, and vegetables, less meat. China's per capita protein consumption is already higher than South Korea's and Japan's. So you're not gonna get more protein per capita unless you have a complete change of diet to Argentina, okay? Which we don't expect, especially as they age, because their population is about to turn over. So you'll see a change in that composition. We believe more aquaculture, more poultry, more fruit, nuts, and vegetables. But the most inefficient converter of grains to end protein is cattle and then pork. And so as Japan's already gone over its peak population, as Europe is potentially approaching that and definitely aging, as North America is aging, as China begins to age, that aspect of the composition of diet is going to lead to less red meat consumption, which is going to free up much more grain, which is one of our concerns for the second half of this decade about row crop. Okay, But at the same point, the kind of protein that you'll need, the one growth area in the near term, short term, is going to be India. But India is not going to eat beef. Okay, okay. They're going to be poultry focused, aquaculture focused, which requires different sort of protein consumption. So how we've set up our um, ag tech portfolio is designed to support uh, farmers' variable costs to make them both environmentally friendly and lower, but also one that would work in a high and a low profitability environment. High profitability is better to get them to take risks to trial new stuff, but hopefully that'll be in place by the tail end of this decade. And at the same point in terms of the crops we're focusing on, leafy green fruits, nuts and vegetables, and also controlled environment, indoor production of that, is to take advantage of the change of diet, the change of location diet, the environmental pressure, and how it's sort of the evolution of what we think is the food delivery system. I mean, let's get into that evolution of the of the food delivery system. What does that mean? They give you two great examples of people who are evolving to deal with that. One is Green Plains, which is a publicly traded, historically ethanol company, becoming a protein company. And one is controlled environment in general. Um, Green Plains was a company that had a very simplistic product portfolio when it began. It took corn and broke it into distilled dried grains, DDGs, and ethanol. Okay? Worked well in the beginning when uh, the demand for ethanol was exploding per the government mandate. But the problem is, is there was a cap on the amount of uh, room you needed for those calories to make fuel cleaner. And also just engineers are just so darn good that you're able to grow productivity per year and so it was able to grow faster than the end market for demand because of limited transportation fuel demand growth. The management team is visionary. Um, they're great business people, entrepreneurial. And they had originally tried to use those windfall profits from the early years to increase their capital base and diversify the revenue streams into things like cattle that consume DDGs or vinegar, which was also fermentation. When the management team really had an epiphany from looking at a technology that we've looked at due diligence and invested with them, a company called FluidQuip, that allows you to consolidate your capital base, sold off the cattle, sold off the vinegar, you're using just your existing plants, and now you can crack a kernel of corn the way you can crack a barrel of oil. So in between, they've added corn oil, 
which is going to benefit materially in the next couple of years because of the explosion of vegetable oils. But now with fluid crypts technology, corn ethanol plants can start to producing clean sugar, industrial sugar, because one of the fastest growing areas out there but with a very uh, consolidated industry is industrial sugar for fermentation, which is one mm. of the fastest growing areas. Uh, you can produce high protein. The one structural area for growth, really, this decade next, is aquaculture, in that we are still overfishing the world sea population, as yep. it is, the Chinese especially with the largest fleet, okay? And also the small fish for fish meal to feed land-based aquaculture. So you've had flat wild production and, and catch for over 30 years now, and yet per capita consumption of seafood continues to rise every year. And we think that's gonna accelerate as the population ages, especially in China and as India comes on. How do you meet that? It's land-based aquaculture. That requires a very certain specific kind of food, a high protein diet, which corn-based DDGs and protein can actually meet. It's some of the most sought after high protein out there for aquaculture. And so Green Plains is converting, using fluid clip technology, all of their plants to be able to produce that high protein end market, dramatically improving their margin and getting into a structural growth area as opposed to gasoline that because of EVs, whatever else is gonna be falling. So now all of a sudden they can produce five products and we think eventually their corn plant using fluid quips will be able to produce 20 products. In Brazil, fluid quip is selling to the sugar plants who convert into ethanol or sugar or power to then also process corn so they can run all year round and also increase the variability. So you're turning these simple plants into the equivalent in complexity of petroleum refineries or even downstream chemical companies. And what that does of your ability to take advantage of the most expensive calorie, improve your margin, dramatically different end markets, get into markets that have true growth, like aquaculture, fermentation, industrial clean sugar. And so Green Plains moving itself from a decaying gasoline transportation fuel market, okay, and DDGs to get fed to beef and somewhat to, to pork, to now uh, fermentation, clean sugar, and the, the structural growth and margins of that, but more importantly, high protein, which goes to aquaculture and some protein and some poultry, is a complete repositioning and flexibility for their plants on a focused limited capital base. And so fluid quip is the enabling technology and, and we're involved with that with Green Plains. And that capitalizes on those, some of those different wins we spoke about. The next aspect is distributed ag or consolidated agriculture. We watched but didn't participate investment-wise in the development of greenhouses, especially in Europe, as something that is actually competitive uh, with outdoor ag for certain crops like lettuce. Uh, we missed that those have become, in certain regions like the EU, competitive with outdoor ag. So we never made any money on that. We've been watching controlled environment for two decades, but always is something that was too expensive and also too carbon inefficient because the amount of electricity it used. Finally, in the last three years, with the dramatic improvement in lighting and LED and efficiency, we were able to evaluate for certain very specific regions, areas that are off the main logistics channel, for certain specific high value products like a basil, okay? There's controlled environment was able to compete with outdoor ag and they were able to compete in a dramatically more environmentally friendly way. No pesticides, no herbicides, they use 95 to 99% less water, dramatically less weight, waste generally because of local production. 
So to go through a, a couple terminology, indoor ag is anything produced indoors. But a greenhouse, you tend not to control the light because it's glass, okay? You don't really control the heat, the humidity, the CO2. True controlled environment is actually a closed off your know, room and walls where you control every variable. And so that's controlled environment versus indoor agriculture. The majority of companies that are now public and that you're familiar with are not actually anything that is going to completely disrupt agriculture. They're sort of the same model, but brought to indoors. And some brilliant people there, some brilliant components, but all of them have a massive capital cost. So on an operating basis, because they've been funded by equity, they can potentially compete, but not in terms of a return. And they want to take every risk possible in the book. They want the science, tech, ag tech risk of developing the technology. They want to own the farms and farming is you know, low return and capital intensive. And they want to build brands for their end products. Holy cow, that's a lot to get right and a lot to get wrong. We've pursued a distributed model that we think can actually truly transform agriculture. By going after and investing and focusing and supporting companies in the end container market, where we will only invest in hardware or software for indoor agriculture. We will try to actually enable the world to feed itself and enable companies to grow and evolve. We will not actually compete with our customers and be the end customers. We also wanna create something that is an affordable option. And so part of the thing I think that people have missed in controlled environment is, if you think about your room, the bigger your room is, the harder it is to control the temperature or a draft humidity in the center of that room. Yeah. They're trying to do that on a warehouse specific basis, which you can only do with an inordinate amount of capital and automation. By making it a uniform box, uniform size, something in a container, okay, is we can change the level of automation. We can do it at an affordable level. Does it cost you $140,000 for a freight farms farm or 200, or do you wanna go up to a million for something for local urban vegetables? Is we can customize, but what it allows us to do is arbitrage logistical inefficiencies. So if you want to be in Aberdeen, South Dakota with a population of 30,000, they can't support the massive warehouses that those companies go for. The other companies are going for mass generic production, okay, where they're trying to get the lowest cost possible, but of the lowest value product. And they're dealing with the most difficult customers. Whole Foods, Kroger, Food Lion, Walmart, those people are horrendous to negotiate with in their use homes, and you have to compete directly with Bruce Taylor and Outdoor Ag. And so the great thing about indoor ag, but especially controlled environment, is if you want me to, to create a tomato that tastes exactly in the same conditions as you would a Tuscan tomato from Italy, I can do that every day of the year, everywhere around the world. But the only way I can get a return for that is in certain areas where those tomatoes are expensive, okay, or basil. So you have this logistics channel that goes basically from the bottom left to the top right of the US and everything along that is competitive. That's also sort of population centric. That's where these large controlled environment companies are going for it. Our companies are going everything off of that. And at the same point, we're also trying to do something about the food deserts and also the food inequity that exists in the United States. Too much of the United States has bad diet, okay? You look at the inner cities, what we can do by working with a number of the different sort of social and service organizations in the cities. There's, you know, our farms are being used by a battered women's shelter in Miami. The Boys and Girls Club of Houston will be doing this soon. And so they can own these farms. The local people can own the farms or the entity can get equity. They get the cash flow. They get jobs. They get 
environmentally friendly, nutritious blend of food, we can finally do something about nutritional inequity, okay? And an affordable level. No one else has a solution that allows you to do that in those areas, both remote and urban. And so that distributed ag, we're the last mile. And so it's some combination, we're trying to be sort of Uber in that these small farms can grow what you want. Okay, you can grow a couple of different products. You can grow what you needed in your area, you're flexible. You're not monolithic production like the other large entities, okay? And also trying to do something like what SAP has done, develop a uniform operating system that works for all controlled environment. So we'll support our, co our companies. We're going for hardware and software, current revenue, what recipes. And at the same point, rather than having one large central solution area, like if you look at freight farms by the end of this year, they're gonna have over 500 farms operating. In 49 states, the United States, we're missing North Dakota. We hope to solve that. Yeah. Over 24 countries. And all of these farms are collaborating. You're getting the data on who's growing what, how better. And so this best practices of having 500 different labs, which will soon be 1500 labs, which will be 3000, okay? Will allow us to dramatically move along the productivity curve and support them to make environmentally friendly, energy, carbon, nutritional, affordable, and keep the equity and the profit in the communities. And so for us to be supporting that, that is truly agricultural disruptive. It's at the last mile, right there, no national trucking, no the waste that comes from all of that and where the profit stays with the owners of the farms. And so that for us is what's gonna be really evolutionary and disruptive for agriculture. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I can see how excited you are about this trend, and there's a lot of positives to discuss, but you open the door to something that I think is important for us to discuss, especially because I'm sure there are some viewers who are excited to go uh, look at ag tech opportunities. I want to talk about the business models that you don't like. You know, what are the things that are out there that maybe are getting some buzz that you just think it doesn't work? Because we should protect investors here a little bit from putting, you know, good money after bad. You don't have to name any names or anything like that, but just things that you think it just doesn't make sense. So, so the answer that we've already touched on is I think the large scale concentrated high volume single product uh, facilities and controlled environment will not earn a sustainable return on capital, especially as the valuations are applying in the public market. Um, I don't think they'll accomplish what we want to in terms of waste or carbon. And, and I think they're dealing with the most competitive customer base and the most competitive products. And so I would raise questions or concerns about those business model approaches. Um, one of the things I would make people highly questionable about is the biggest source of dollars out there that companies are desperate to allocate to go out and promote and PR and check the box is that they're doing something about carbon, okay? And some of the biggest ag tech companies out there, some of the biggest names and valuations are wrapping themselves in the, we're gonna provide a carbon solution. And so they'll go to the companies out there like the FedExes of the world, okay? And, and FedEx is desperate to say, hey, we're putting a billion dollars to work each year to you know, balance out our carbon footprint. And so the real fixation I would urge people to do is are the solutions that they do actually full cycle doing anything to actually change the food waste and the carbon footprint? Carbon is something that everyone is saying within the ESG mantra, okay? And that very few people are actually accomplishing. And Max, as you and I spoke prior, 
mean, I take a look at what's going on in the electrical vehicle world, okay? And uh, it's, it's to me a, a disgrace how the government incentives are creating you know, bad outcomes. So you have uh, nickel that's mined and melted down and processed to create the batteries um, from Indonesia to China in a massively carbon polluting and energy intensive way that go into a Tesla car. The Tesla car is sold to in Germany and because there's only automotive carbon credits, when that Tesla is sold, they get that credit, which they then can sell to another car company or monetize, okay? But Germany closed all their nukes, okay? And so their backup power source that runs a good amount of those cars is they dug new lignite, low calorie, you know, <laughs> lowest, you know, coal mines and created coal power plants. And so by our math, those Teslas in Germany, from full cycle, from the nickel to the car to the emissions are two to four times as carbon emitting as a, a VW diesel in Germany currently. That's a government mandate where all they do is say, hey, let's look at the tailpipe. They don't look at the total cycle. We look at a number of the other sort of you know, more specific companies like what uh, Green Plains is doing in terms of converting corn that takes CO2 out of the air and then a carbon sequestering pipeline and sequestering carbon that's actually completely removing carbon from the environment and yet they don't get carbon credits today. I think that the government system and, and the different incentives will evolve and a really underappreciated part of the potential profitability for Green Plains and other ag tech companies is the uh, enablement of getting credit for true carbon sequestration, elimination and conversion from the environment versus false like Tesla in Germany, but we're not there yet. And so I would really urge investors to pay attention, not just to the business models, but to the full cycle environmental effect. And is there a lot, are there big lobbying efforts going on to, to get that changed? Uh, yes, there's a, it, it will lobbying, negotiating, we, we can go through all the list of yeah. what's going on. I mean, the EU has created a more than trillion dollar incentive for agriculture and carbon in their stimulus program, but that hasn't been actually divvied up and allocated yet. Um, and there are even in the alternative vehicle space, like you're watching people react. So there's a company called Freyre, F-R-E-Y-R, that's gonna make a carbon neutral battery for the EV up in Norway. Uh, and that's something that's reacting to try and get the better allocation of credit. But in agriculture, in the current stimulus bill that's being contemplated going forward in infrastructure and in the EU one, there is aggressive work by different parties, not all of them altruistic, <laughs> to try and, and get those carbon credits allocated out. Um, I hope that they're done in, in a way that's less directed such as you know, the government says, look at the tailpipe, and one that actually says, hey, let's use an independent party like the, the uh, OMB does in terms of you know, scoring the budget to say, does this give total cycle carbon effect? So we're coming down to the end. There's one question that we haven't gotten to that I wanted to touch on, which is the difference in opportunity sets between private and public markets and how you approach private investment versus public investment. Public investing you know, it allows you to at least choose the size of your investment and manage that and create your portfolio based on you know some constraint of liquidity, but generally what you view the risk return of each individual investment. And if you're wrong, you can get out, okay? Um, or if a better other opportunity comes along, you can get out. Yeah. Um, when you're in privately, the size of your investment, at least initially, uh, is more based upon the liquidity needs of the company versus your assessment of the risk return. Uh, but because of the uh, illiquid nature, the opportunity cost created by tying your capital up on certain exit, the opportunity cost is almost as big as the actual risk. Okay, 
Because if you're wrong, you're stuck. And if something better comes along, you're stuck. So automatically, the return hurdle has to be so much higher investing privately. The difference, although when privately is public, you're limited to what is public and what you can do. In the private, you can either build a solution, which we've done often, or you can go and find a solution for what you want. So there's a much greater breadth of investment opportunity, albeit higher risk in part due to the illiquidity in the private markets. And so that ability to build a business and build a solution is something that is a phenomenal opportunity. And then when it hits a certain scale or certain capital needs, you have the public markets as an option potentially to go there, especially with how SPACs now at least allow growth companies to get a certain future valuation. But there's been a massive evolution of liquidity in the private markets too. So you can take companies to a trillion dollar size and not have to take them to the public markets earlier. And so much greater flexibility privately now than you had 10 and 20 years ago. And when you look out the opportunity set in each area, is is one clearly you know, more opportunity in private versus public? Um, at the moment, relative again to the breadth of opportunities that you can find invested and help grow and develop, I would say that the private is still more prolific than the public. People uh, are moving more of those private opportunities into the public arena, and so those options are growing. But you're still talking a fraction of the ways to be able to express a view publicly than there are privately. Okay. Well, Dwight, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I know I learned a lot about ag tech and the agricultural sector in general. Um, and, and thank you to all the viewers at home. Max, very much appreciate the time and, and uh, look forward to speaking to you going forward. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.